shut the door. All right, everybody, here we go. Are you ready? Buckle up. This is Mental Health for Teens. That's my name. My father-in-law calls that my alphabet suit behind my name. It's all my little credentials. I'm a biblical counselor in private practice in Roswell, Georgia. If you know Roswell, where all the restaurants are, my office is right there. Right in the middle of all the restaurants. It's a great place. That's my website, stephenebrand.com. Um, this is me, baptized before you were born, December 4th, 1977. I used to be in the ministry. I led teens, campus, and adults. And uh, anybody here from Columbia, yeah. South Carolina? Anybody know Perry Keeve? Yes, yes. Okay, my wife and I studied the Bible with his mom and dad, Dwight and Scarlett, 35 years ago. I used to be an evangelist in Columbia. Yeah. And I led the campus ministry for five years. How about that? So, um, who, who else? Okay, let's see. What else are we doing here? Uh, dual masters at BU. So, I used to lead the campus ministry at USC, University of South Carolina. Then my wife and I planted the church in St. Louis. Then um, I went and led the campus ministry at Boston University and Boston College. Got out of the ministry. Then I went to Boston University. Got a double master's. And what I do every day is I do therapy. I, I talk to people, I listen to people, and I help people. And I love what I do. If any of you think you might like that as a career, please talk to me because I love what I do every day. It is just so rewarding to help people heal, stretch, and grow. Now, I want to tell you a little factoid about the United States of America. If you're trying to figure out what you want to major in, 80% of people in America hate what they do every day. So, is anybody here a senior in high school? Okay. You got senioritis yet? Yep. Okay. So, when you work in a job that you hate, and you're looking at the clock all day waiting for 3 o'clock or 3.30 for the bell to ring so you can get out, that's what it's like when you're in a job that you hate. So, this is a free little nugget here. Whatever you do in life, do it. Do something you love. Do something that you have passion for. And I, I love what I do. So I've seen 27,000 hours practicing a biblical therapy. I present my Restoration of the Heart workshop, sometimes with Jim Long, sometimes by myself. I've done it six times in Africa, six times in the United States. And my wife and I live two blocks away. We walk to church in the morning. We downsized from the big house we raised our kids in. We live in a little house, and we go to Africa twice a year in November and March. Anybody want to guess why we go in March and November? It's the dry season. Why would I want to go in the dry season? What, what happens in the wet season? Rain and mosquitoes, which bring malaria. So I go in March and November because I don't want to get malaria. Okay. My wife and I have been married for 35 years. We just had our anniversary, and we do mission trips. That's our nonprofit, Free to Thrive. We go to Africa twice a year. So this is me. I'm a 62-year-old adrenaline junkie. That first picture is me on top of a mountain doing the hardest thing I ever did at the age of 60 in the White Cloud Wilderness in Idaho. The next picture is me and my family with the evangelist in Kumasi, Ghana. The next picture, my wife cracked a joke because my wife's a big joker. If you know her, she likes to crack jokes. So she cracked a joke and made us all laugh. That's taken in 
Accra, Ghana. The lower picture is me and my family. My son lives in San Francisco, works for a French startup. My daughter lives eight houses down right here in the neighborhood. And that's me in a glacier in Alaska, ice climbing out of a crevasse, which I hated, but it was kind of fun, you know? So it's kind of scary and fun, you know how that is, okay? So enough about me, the rest is all about you, all right? That's your brain. Did you know your brain looked like that? We're going to talk about the psychological development of a team. So, Jesus grew, and you guys are growing. You guys are growing physically. Do you know a teenager can grow two inches or more in one night? That's why it's important to get your sleep and to get that cell phone or that iPad out of your bed, okay? Because you guys need lots of sleep. You know how exhausting this weekend is? And you're going to be fried when you drive back on Sunday? Get your sleep, man. Get some sleep on Sunday night. All right? But Jesus grew in wisdom, which is applied knowledge. He grew in stature, which means he grew up. He grew physically. And he grew in favor with God. So even Jesus, and I don't totally get this, he was God, but he still had a relationship with God. He went up while it was dark, and he would go out and pray. Okay, He went out to the wilderness. He told his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. He went and spent 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and praying. So Jesus grew in favor with God, and he grew socially. Some of you guys think everybody's supposed to be an extrovert. Do you know that introverts are awesome? So are extroverts. Do you know extroverts get energy from being around people? Introverts get energy by being alone. If you're an introvert and you've thought something's wrong with you because you're not like the life of the party, you don't have this big personality, read the book Quiet. Quiet is a well-researched book about the strength of the introvert. Do you know most, most CEOs in America are introverts? Anybody want to guess why? CEOs at the top of corporate America, most of them are introverts. Anybody want to guess why? Yes. Because they have to deal with people all the time. But they're introverts. So they like being because they have to deal with people all the time, their time to be alone is precious to them. Okay, okay, you're getting warm. Because it makes them more thoughtful because they're by themselves, it makes them develop their thoughts, their that, that you're getting warmer. So extroverts can get in the way because they're talking too much, and introverts are taking in more data. And they're able to listen and to be quiet and spend time alone and be thoughtful and contemplate. Now, an extrovert and an introvert, one's not better than the other. And so don't think you're better because you're an extrovert or something's wrong with you because you're an introvert. But Jesus grew socially in favor with men, which means... Some of you are more social than others, and that's okay. Everybody can't be an extrovert. Everybody shouldn't be an introvert. But the point is, Jesus grew, and guess what's happening to you right now? In this part of your life, you're growing like a weed, okay? You're developing and growing just like Jesus did. But it would be weird if you were an acorn to stay an acorn, right? An acorn becomes an oak tree. The Bible talks about being an oak of righteousness. 
So it's normal to grow and develop, but some of you guys right now are, are stuck. Some of you guys are stuck emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, maybe not physically, you're still growing like a weed. And I'm gonna help you get unstuck. I'm gonna help you figure some things out. You have three questions to answer. Number one, who is God? Now, your mom is not God. Your dad is not God. Your teen ministry leader is not God. Your teen ministry, the culture of your teen ministry is not God. Who's God? God is God. Right? God is God. And so the ICOC is not God. God is God. So you've got to figure out at your age, you're on a search for who is God. And then the second question, guess what your second question is? Who am I? Do you know that the psychological job of a teenager from puberty to 25 is to answer the question, who am I? And do you know what's involved in that question? Just psychological growth. What, why do they pick the number 25? Why do they say 25? Yes, sir, back there. Because that's when your brain is fully developed. That's great. Have your parents used that one on you yet? Oh, my God. Do you know that your brain, the frontal lobe, the part of your brain for good decision-making is not fully developed until you're 25, okay? So from puberty, when you get hormones to 25, your job is to figure out, who am I? And what do we say in our culture when somebody is having a hard time figuring out who they are? We say, she's having a hard time finding herself. He's having a hard time finding himself. When somebody goes to college and they start, or even in high school, they start to fail classes, they start to, to make big mistakes, and they start to derail, they start to go in the ditch, and they have failure to launch, we say the same thing. You know, he's having a hard time finding himself. She's having a hard time finding herself. And so, three questions that you have to answer and this is just introduction. Who is God? Who am I? And then this is the oldest question in history. When God asked Adam in the garden this question, he said, where are you, Adam? Right? After they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said, where are you? These questions are central. Who is God? Who are you? And then on this journey of life, where are you? Because that is not what the journey of life looks like. My journey was like, woo, like this, okay? Curves everywhere. That is a straight road, and very few people just get on that road and go. So the journey of life isn't quite like that. This is a great metaphor for being a teenager because you guys are rockets. And you can't wait to blast off. And some of you are doing a countdown already. You're going 24 months till I leave home. 23, 22. Some of you are already at 12, 11, 10 months till I get out of here. 9, 8, count with me. 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, blast off.
you go to college, right? But why do they use all that energy in a rocket to overcome gravity? And guess who's the gravity in your life? Mom and Dad. They're holding you back, man. They just grounded you. They just took away your phone. Just took away your iPad. Okay? Took away the car keys. Right? And so it feels, you, you see the word there? It feels like your parents are the gravity holding you back. But what about the frontal lobe? It's not fully developed till 25. So why did God give you parents? The frontal lobe is the part of your brain for good decision-making and sound judgment. So God gave you parents to hold you down so you can launch at the proper time, not to hold you back, not to ruin your life. When I was your age, you know what I thought my parents were? Idiots! I thought my parents were idiots. I thought I knew everything. And I went off the reservation. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 70s. I was a mess. My life was a mess. Guess who the idiot was? It was me. But I wouldn't listen to my parents. I thought they were stupid. I thought they were idiots. But this is a good metaphor. And, and in my office, when I talk to teenagers, I help them understand this tension. You have parental tension. Even if your parents are great, okay? Even if you have the most awesome parents ever, there's tension between you, the rocket, and them, the gravity. But we need gravity. Who woke up this morning complaining about gravity? Nobody. We accept it. If, if I dropped my phone and it hit the ground, I might complain about gravity. So I have to go to the AT&T store or the Apple store and get my phone fixed. But in general, we accept gravity as a part of life. If you fall down, you're going to get hurt, okay? But we need to accept the parental tension that we have as we're on the launching pad. Have you ever seen them wheel a rocket out of the hangar on this big road? to the launching pad at Cape Canaveral, and then they do the countdown, 10, 9, 8. That's kind of where some of you guys are at, especially you seniors. You're counting down the months so you can go to college. Big topic here, self-esteem. Why do you think teenagers struggle so much with self-esteem? It's because of question number one and question number two. Who is God and who am I? Because without those two things in the equation, it's hard to figure life out. But some people are born naturally with a lot of confidence, high self-esteem. Some people are born naturally with low self-esteem. And then you can have things happen to you, like life happens, right? Racial prejudice can hurt your self-esteem. Bullying in school can hurt your self-esteem. Having mental illness can hurt your self-esteem. Having parents who fight a lot can hurt your self-esteem. Having parents who are abusive to you, verbally, emotionally, psychologically, physically abusive. I'm not talking about discipline. I'm talking about somebody that beats you when they're angry. 
that can hurt your self-esteem. All these things can hurt our self-esteem. But you are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27 and 31. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. He created them. Male and female, He created them. God saw that He had made all that He had made, and He said it was very good. Yes? Oh, yeah, sure. So, you've got to know what it takes to have a healthy self-esteem is that, that you are created in God's image. Well, what do we say about God? Do we say God is bad? We say God is... Well, if God is good and you're created in God's image, what are you? You're good. You guys are good. Now, are you a bad person that does bad things? Are you a good person that sins sometimes that does bad things? A lot of people get really confused about this. Because when they do bad things, they think they're bad. But you are a good person that does bad things sometimes. So am I. I'm a good person that does bad things sometimes. So it's really important to get this straight, that you're created in God's image, and God is good, and you are good. Here's something I love to talk about. Your uniqueness. Do you know that they've got all these facial recognition technologies now? And you know that the iris of your eye has a pattern. Nobody else on earth has it. You are one in seven billion. You know your fingerprint? My voice print. Your voice print. If you've heard me speak for this hour, and then I called you on the phone, if I talked to you for a little while, you would say, oh, that's Steve from that class at North River on Saturday. We can recognize each other. We can recognize our favorite singer, our favorite band, okay, by the voice print. So the fingerprint, the voice print, the iris, the DNA, we are all unique. You are one in seven billion. That's how special you are. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says God delights in you. And the word delights in the Hebrew means, your name's Orion, okay? It means if you walk through the door, God would say, there she is, there's Orion, she's my girl. Like he would smile, he would light up. Like when I said that, you smile naturally. And you're smiling again. Okay, I'm embarrassing you, I know, okay? But that's how God feels about you. Like, God loves you. You are His beloved. You are His treasured possession. So He lights up when you walk into the room. Here's another thing. The thing. The cross. So if you're wondering about your self-esteem, what did God do for you? Jesus stretched out His arms and He died for you. That, if, if nothing else establishes your worth, if you have the lowest self-esteem in this room, and you accept that, and you know Jesus died for you, then that can be a bedrock, a foundation of your own self-worth and your self-esteem. And as this slide says, an unshakable source of your self-worth, that God sent His only Son to die for you. I want to talk about sexuality. This is a place, besides identity, I just covered identity. 
Identity is one of the places, self-esteem is one of the places where Satan tries to take you down. But as far as what's going on in our culture and our society right now, sexuality is a place where Satan is trying to take you down. So the enemy wants to use your parents and even the church to make sex seem dirty and forbidden. And you see the title of this slide? Sexuality is beautiful. Now God's design for sexuality is in the bonds of marriage. So what we do outside of marriage can make us feel guilt and shame. Okay? And when we feel guilt and shame, it affects our self-esteem. Does anybody know the difference between guilt and shame? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah. Shame is kind of like embarrassment because, like, like you know you did something wrong. Guilt's kind of like I feel it just doesn't feel right. Okay. Thank you. Okay, you're doing good. You're doing good. Yeah. Guilt is like it's like a feeling that you get from yourself, like a bad feeling from yourself. You say it's like you feel it from other people. Okay. Okay. I would say that shame would more be um, with shame. It's I would say it would be a a self-inflicted um, type feeling or that you get from a certain action you take, like someone else said. Okay. With guilt. I would say that guilt's an overarching feeling or a looming feeling of dread from, from said action that you took. Okay. Let me explain it this way. God gave you a conscience, right? And when you do something wrong, your conscience tweaks. So that's when you have a guilty conscience. <coughs> now, with your conscience, you can repent. So if you do something wrong and your conscience is tweaking, you can say, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry, brother, sister. I repent. I'm not going to do that anymore. So that's a behavior. So guilt is about a behavior. Shame is a sense of inner badness. When you feel like you're bad. That's why I made the distinction earlier between being created in God's image and God is good and you are good. Okay? So you're not bad. There's no, there's no bad person in here. Now every one of us have done bad things. And our conscience bothers us and we feel guilty. But shame is what the enemy uses to take you out. Now, going back, if I can go back to that slide, Jesus didn't die and shed his blood for you to spend your life in guilt and or shame. Jesus died to give you freedom from guilt and shame. So God's plan for sexuality is to be played out in marriage. And it's the sexual things that we do can give us an incredible sense of not just guilt, but shame. Because the Bible talks about that he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So sexual sin can make us feel really, really bad. Okay? And that's where the shame comes in. I want to talk about sexuality, what the world says and what the church says, what the Bible says. And you have to decide, you have a choice between are you going to let the world, like the kids at school or the kids in your neighborhood, decide what sexuality is 
Or are you going to let the Bible and God help you decide what sexuality is? Here's God's standard of integrity. Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The world thinks this is stupid. The world thinks if you're going to buy a car, you need to test drive it. So if you're going to marry somebody, you need to live with them first. You need to have sex first. That's what the world says. That's not what God says. It says each one of us should learn how to control his own body. Now this is why we're teaching this class, because when you're a teenager, and you've got all this stuff going on in your head, and your heart, and your soul, and your body, you've got hormones that are raging in your body. This is really hard. But this is God's will, that you learn how to control your own body. And look at these next words, in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let me give you a little secret. Anybody can have sex. Anybody can make that choice to be a sexual, passionate, lustful teenager. It takes a lot of character and a lot of help from our brothers and sisters, from our teen leaders, from our parents, to go into your wedding as a virgin. Now the world says that that's weak. The world says more partners, that's better, more experience. Uh Uh-uh. The Bible says to save yourself from marriage, okay? And so this is a big tension between the world and what the Bible says. Now this scripture is really strong. I want to talk for a minute here about my life, okay? I want to read the first section here and then talk a little bit about my life. Sexual integrity, the choice is yours. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That means if you like waterfalls or if you like the beach or if you like the ocean, that's something God put in you to see a sunrise or a sunset and to have something inside of you that goes, wow, okay, that we're supposed to reason from the creation to the creator. For although they knew God, though, Let's see, being clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people without excuse, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This was me in high school. I went to a high school in Illinois that had an hour open campus lunch. My aunt was a substitute teacher at that high school. She told my mom later that I didn't get National Honor Society even though I had good grades because I was hanging out with the stoners on the corner in front of school because I was a stoner. So in high school, I got high and I got drunk pretty much every day. And my life was a mess. I was in the ditch. My life was a train wreck, okay? And I was living this way 
my thinking was futile and my foolish heart was darkened. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. And here's the scary sentence. Look at that sentence highlighted. Therefore, God did what? He gave. The, he's not going to stop you. You can do whatever you want to do. You have choice. And God will give you over in the sinful desire of your heart, not just to sexual impurity, but to all kinds of things. And let me tell you what stopped that runaway train in my life. My best friend died. My best friend that I got high with every day. My dad um, was a successful businessman, and I had uh, the privilege of using his boat on the weekends. And so, um, you know how right now we have MP3? Used to have CDs. Before that, it was cassettes. Does anybody know what was before cassettes? Eight tracks. So I would get in the boat with a case of beer and a bag of weed and my eight track playing Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin or whatever. And my friends and I would just spend the day water skiing and getting wasted. And one day we were on the beach. And my friend that I used to get high with every day went by on another boat. And he goes, hey! And everybody in our boat went, hey! The old drunken yell. That was the last time I ever saw him. That day he fell off the boat. The boat chopped him. So he was chopped by the propeller. And his body sank for three days. And then there's a chemical process your body goes through when you drown where after three days, your body comes up out of the water and they found him. I went to his funeral. And the priest, because he was Catholic, it was a Catholic funeral. The priest said, Jerry lived a very fast life, like many of you young people here today. And that statement went <coughs> right here. And I thought, oh boy, I need to slow down. Like I'm living too fast, I'm living wrong. I'm messing up, I'm just getting high, getting drunk all the time, chasing girls, I need to slow down. So that day, at that funeral, when I got in my car, I started to clean up my life. It took me about a year and a half. I could quit for a few days, maybe a few weeks. I tapered, I was smoking Marlboros back in the day. You know, I was getting high every day, I was getting drunk every day. And it took me a while to taper all that. It took me a while to slow down. If I could quit for two or three weeks, maybe a month, maybe five weeks, and then one weekend, I would just get wasted again. And it's not until I met a girl on campus in my junior year, Connie, invited me to church. Now, she'd been going to Bible talks, and she went to a retreat down in Kentucky because I grew up in Illinois. And I said, what'd you do on that retreat? She said, we sat around the grass and sang songs and read the Bible and prayed. And I thought, ooh. And then next thing she told me, she got baptized. And I thought, wow, you were sprinkled when you were a baby. Then you were baptized last summer. Why'd you get baptized again? That's three times. You don't need to get baptized three times. So I tried to argue with her. And she invited me to church. And when I went to church, I heard singing that sounded like angels. I saw people that really loved each other, and I heard the Bible preached for the first time. 
So what snapped me out of this was my best friend dying and then Connie inviting me to church and giving me a chance to find God. But God will give you over for the degrading of your bodies with one another and He will let you exchange everything you know about God for a lie and He'll let you serve and worship created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. I'm not thankful that my friend died, but I'm thankful that Connie invited me to church and I became a Christian. What is the government? What are the schools? What is popular culture teaching you about sexuality? These are the words embedded in our culture. Inclusion, tolerance, choice, anything goes. And the enemy's goal is sexual confusion. I'm not talking about not loving people who are different than you. I'm not talking about not loving people who are LGBT. I'm talking about making a choice to not live in an immoral, sexual way. We just had Guy Hammond here last weekend, and he talked about the LBGT community. Uh, the guy who was with him had gone through, actually, a sex change to become something else, and then he became a Christian and got it changed back to be a man again. And so... They talked about the fact Guy Hammond is married. His wife died. He had children with his wife. Then he remarried recently. But he knows that he's attracted to men. But he's living a lifestyle that God calls him to in the Bible. But what is the enemy's goal? The enemy's goal is to destroy the fabric of the family system in this country. And so the enemy uses these words, and there's been an aggressive effort to put these words into our school system, into the government, into our culture. So the enemy is trying to create sexual confusion so that you don't know who you are or what you are, okay? And if you're confused about your sexuality, that's normal in the culture that we're in because that's the enemy's goal. The enemy doesn't want you to be sure about who you are and what you are. The enemy wants you to be confused. Now look at this scripture. I want you to see the aggressiveness of Satan. So this is about Sodom and Gomorrah. So the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. Because in the Middle East, man, they are experts in hospitality. Okay? So Lot was being very hospitable. You can wash your feet Spend the night, then go away early in the morning. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. So these are two angels being invited to Lot's house. He says, I wash your feet. You can spend the night. You can have dinner. And they said, no, we'll stay in the square. Now, Lot says, okay, i got to talk him out of this. So Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. And he prepared a meal for them. Thank you. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every... Okay, so all the men, all the men from every part of the city are banging on the door, and what do they want? What does it say here in all caps? All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? 
bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. That's how aggressive the enemy is. That's how aggressive the culture is. That's how aggressive the enemy wants to take you out. And one of the ways he wants to take you out is through sexual confusion. And the sexual agenda in this country and around the world right now is really aggressive to create sexual confusion, which can lead to our final topic before Q&A. Now, let me say this. Everybody pull out a piece of paper and write a question for me to ask, answer. Because I'm going to answer some questions in about eight minutes. So if you have a question about anything with mental health or sexuality or identity or um, self-esteem, write your questions and pass them and Kyle will pick them up in a few minutes. But this is a topic that we need to cover We need to talk about teen depression and suicidality. Okay, look up here at emotions. Okay, don't talk to each other, please. Just pull out a piece of paper and uh, write your questions down. What are the emotions when somebody's struggling with depression? Sadness, anxiety, guilt, anger, mood swings, Feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness, and irritability. What about behavior? What are the behaviors of people struggling with depression? If you're crying all the time, that's like the hallmark symptom of clinical depression. Isolating and withdrawal, not just because you're an introvert, but you quit even responding to texts, you quit being available to your friends, you're just all by yourself. Neglecting responsibilities, your grades start to tank. Changes in personal appearance, you quit taking care of yourself, you quit washing your hair, you quit showering, you quit putting on deodorant, you quit brushing your teeth. And I'm not talking about that one week at the swamp. I'm talking about in real life, okay, not just at the swamp. Um, And you get slow motion. You feel like you're walking in concrete when you're depressed. Slow motion. Some people, instead of slow motion, they feel agitated. And uh, they can't settle themselves. They can't calm themselves. What about physically? You feel chronic fatigue, lack of energy. Maybe you sleep all the time. Maybe you can't sleep. Maybe you have insomnia and you can't sleep at all. People have weight gain or loss. Some people get anorexia. They lose their appetite, they quit eating, they lose weight. Some people lose motivation. Some people abuse um, pills, alcohol and drugs. That's what I did. That That was my thing when I was depressed, when I was a kid. And then some people have aches and pains in their body. I want to talk about suicide. Memorize this. Because, you know, it's pretty normal for everybody to have a thought once in a while. Like, what if I wasn't here? Okay. What if I died? Okay. Would anybody notice? Would anybody care? But look at this. Look at this statement. Suicide is a permanent choice based on temporary emotions. Now, that doesn't make good sense, does it? 
You make a permanent decision to do away with yourself based on temporary feelings. Now, when you're sad and depressed all the time, you may feel like it makes sense to go away. But we're going to talk about that. Here's what I call spectrum theory about suicidality. There's a thought of, I want to kill myself. Then there's a plan. And let's say your plan is you're going to drive your car into a concrete bridge. Well, you need a means to carry it out. You need a car. You need gas in the car. And you need a concrete bridge. But you still need a fourth thing, which is intent. Now, most Christians, most disciples, most religious people, most people in the South, in the Bible Belt, aren't going to do that. But they do have this feeling of, Lord, take me home. Like, my life is miserable enough, I hate my life enough, that I just wish he would take me to heaven. Okay? Most Christians, most religious people, most disciples aren't going to kill themselves. But if somebody says they are, you need to take that seriously. And people need to get professional help. But this is the spectrum. Thought, plan, means, and then intent. Okay? Now there's a difference. Some people make gestures. Okay? Like they do self-injury to themselves. They hurt themselves. But they don't try to kill themselves. That's a cry for help. They're trying to get attention. The internet culture on depression and suicide. There are memes about suicide and depression. Uh, people make fun of it. Some people say it's awkward. There's a stigma about depression and suicide. It looks weird to be depressed or there's a social cost. And then some people joke about it. It's funny. It's relatable. It's free. There's no weird stares. Are you joking? Are you serious? Nobody knows but you. Okay? Suicidality and depression is very serious. So don't, when somebody talks about it, it's no joke. Now, here's our job today. Our job is to talk about those three questions in the beginning, to talk about identity and self-esteem, to talk about sexuality, and then on depression and suicidality, our job is to destigmatize depression. What do we say if somebody is up and down? If somebody's moody, we say they're bipolar, right? All teenagers are moody. You know, we're all struggling with our emotions and our moods and our bodies and our hormones. But when people are depressed, it's like they're mental. And it's like if something's going on up here in your head, there's a stigma like you're crazy, okay? But, now look at the picture. If you had a broken arm, right? You play soccer, right? Soccer? Basketball? And what if you broke your arm? Would you feel guilty going to the ER and getting the bone set, getting the cast? No, there's no stigma with that. There's no stigma with having a broken arm and getting a cast or a broken leg, or a broken ankle, and just going to the doctor, going to the ortho, and getting it fixed, right? What about, hate to bring this up, this is kind of nasty, but what about if you don't just have a cold, 
you know, cold kind of goes away in a few days. But if you're like bringing up this green and brown stuff out of your throat and it's not going away and you got like 103 fever, do you feel guilty going to the doctor getting an antibiotic? Like a Z-pack to kill that thing? So you can go back to school and catch up on your homework? Okay. So why do feel people feel so ashamed? Why is there such a stigma? Is your brain part of your body? Of course. So why is it's just old school, it's old fashioned, it's out of date. Just because something is wrong with your brain, don't hate yourself. Don't wish you were dead. Don't hurt yourself. If something's wrong with your brain chemistry, it's like your brain is like a compass and it's supposed to be pointing north. But when you're depressed, your brain is pointing west-northwest or east-northeast or your brain is pointing south. Your brain's on tilt. And if you get on medication, it can straighten out your brain. Some of you think medication is bad. Some of you, your parents think medication is bad or that it's weak or that you should just pray more or read your Bible more. That's not the way it works. There is a, all these things that I just showed you, that, that stuff, that's caused by brain chemistry. Don't hate yourself. Say, hey, my brain's on tilt. I need something to correct it. Can I tell you the, the research on depression? Because this is, these are the symptoms of depression. You know, in the word study, we talk about life and doctrine. And we say, okay, which one's most important, life or doctrine? The left wing or the right wing of the airplane? How many wings does it take to fly an airplane? Okay, so they're both important. Life and doctrine, like the scripture in Timothy. Well, they did a research study with hundreds of people who were depressed in three groups. One group just got medication. One group just got therapy. One group got medication and therapy. And guess what happened? The group that just got medication, they got better, but they slid back into their depression. The group that just got therapy, they got better, but they slid back into their depression. The group that got both medication and therapy got better and stayed better. So the gold standard, medically, this is a medical thing. Depression is a medical thing, okay? The way to deal with depression is medication and therapy. Why? Have you ever seen the cross-section of an iceberg? Where there's the tip of the iceberg and there's the water line and there's this big piece of ice under the water, right? Well, medication is like dealing with the symptoms, like the tip of the iceberg. But therapy deals with all these problems under the water. Like my dad screams at me, or my mom beats me, or they bully me at school, or why do they pick on me? Why do they hate me? Why do they, you know, all these things that you have, your confusion about your sexuality, your confusion about your mental health. You can talk about all those things in therapy. And so, what is the treatment for depression and even suicidality, wishing you were dead or wanting to hurt yourself? It's all part of um, the mental illness part. And mental illness is no different than having a broken arm or having bronchitis and needing to take medication. So let's destigmatize depression. 
because the stigma on depression is a lie. It's just a medical problem. Here's my summary slide, and Kyle's getting up to collect your questions, and I'm going to do a little Q&A here. But the summary is you have three questions to answer. Number one, who is God? Number two, who am I? Number three, where am I on my journey? Then I want to help you today. I hope that I've helped you to have a solid self-esteem and to understand godly sexuality and to destigmatize depression and suicidal thoughts. And the final thing is I want you to realize how valuable you are to God. When you walk in the room, God lights up and says, there's my girl, there's my guy, there's my man. Okay? There's Kyle, he's my man. That's what God says. Okay? So, this is my summary slide. Now I'm going to start answering some of these questions and we'll go until 4 o'clock and answer as many questions as we can. Wow, thank you. You guys are great. Now, if you're anything like the first class, those there's some more over there, Kyle. The questions were really good. I'm sure these are really good. Now, these questions are great. This is a good one. How can you deal with always feeling lonely and unloved no matter our efforts. So, some people are more melancholy. Sometimes we have things in our personality that make us more melancholy. I want you guys, you know how you can use the internet for bad things? I want you guys to start using the internet for good things. Like, you can research, how can I increase my self-esteem? You can even put in there biblical scriptures to help me with my self-esteem. You can put in there Godly self-esteem. If your imagination can come up with it, if you want to grow in how you feel about yourself, whether it's loneliness or um, this person was feeling unloved, uh, that could be some self-pity. It could also be that their friends aren't reciprocating. You know, I'm 62, and what I do now is, is I have reciprocal relationships. You know, if I'm putting out a lot of energy, if I'm calling and texting somebody and they're not calling and texting me back, you know, I I don't have time for that. You guys do. But there is a point where you're kind of just wasting your energy if somebody's not loving you back, if somebody's not returning that. Now, I also want to talk about on this, about you guys not discriminating in your teen ministry if somebody's a disciple or not. Okay. We want everybody to go to heaven. We want everybody to get their sins forgiven, to make Jesus Lord. But there's a timing issue. We're not all at the same place on our journey at the same time. So please practice unconditional love in your team ministry. And don't make it like some people are in and some people are out. Don't make your team ministry clicky. And if it's clicky, break the clicks, okay? So that in your team ministry... You can all practice unconditional love. Because if there's any place that people shouldn't feel lonely and unloved, it's in the church. So if that's happening in your teen ministry, break that up and make it more godly uh, the way God wants it. Here's a good question. 
How can I be a friend to someone who is of the same sex? And hang out with them while being able to still be strong in my convictions. There are a couple words here. I can't read. I'm sorry. Pardon? Pardon? Okay, but it says same sex. So maybe that person, the other person is same sex attracted and you're not. I think we're supposed to love everybody. I think you need to be careful about your boundaries sexually. I think that's important. Um, why are the reasons that people don't ask for help when they have depression? I think it's because of what I just talked about, the stigma. And we're trying to de The reason we're having these, this class, and by the way, this class has been very well attended because people are um, needing this. They're needing to destigmatize mental illness. With having bipolar disorder, I escalate emotionally. How exactly do I focus myself? Because I feel everything, including sexually, and I feel rage, depression, irritability, hopelessness, and aggressiveness. I don't know how to handle it. Any tips? That's a great question. Thank you, whoever put that out there, for being so honest. Um, again, I think anybody who has something like bipolar disorder or depression or an anxiety disorder, uh, the, the gold standard is therapy and medication. And so if you're continuing to have all those problems, and you've got a really good therapist, maybe your psychiatrist needs to tweak your medication. Or if you've got a great psychiatrist and your medication's good, maybe your therapist isn't that good. But you need to get professional help if you're having still those kind of symptoms, because those are strong, powerful symptoms. Okay, great. These are great questions. You guys are awesome. Number one, where does mania come from in the brain? Um, so, mania. Let me explain bipolar disorder. So, bipolar means both extremes. Okay, the old word for bipolar was manic depression. So, when somebody's manic, they can talk nonstop because their mind is going super fast. They can feel boundless energy. They don't feel a need to sleep, okay? They can hyperspend, like people who have credit cards and have money can spend 10000 on their credit card in one day. And they can become hypersexual. So sometimes we can uh, go from the moral point of view that somebody is being sexual, not realizing it's because they have this mind that's racing and they have pressured speech and they're hypersexual because they're manic. Now, the idea of medicating somebody who's bipolar, who has manic depression, is to even out their moods. But if anybody has ever been manic, the feeling of being manic is arguably, people have told me, one of the greatest feelings ever. So when you medicate it, it can be pretty boring. But when you're manic, you can do all kind of damage to yourself because you can become hypersexual. 
Okay, you can hyperspin. You can go days without sleeping and feel like Superman, Superwoman, Wonder Woman, you know, Spider-Man, whatever, okay? But then you crash. And when you crash is when people get mega depressed and suicidal. And the idea of being on medication is to even all that out, okay? So what makes somebody manic is a chemical imbalance in their brain. And people usually take a medication like Abilify or Depakote or Lithium to even out their brain, okay? Um, let's do a couple more. Can somebody pull the door, please? Thank you. No, the second question, if medication is supposed to help, why does medication make it worse? Medication is trial and error. Even though doctors are MDs and they've gone to a lot of school, it's still a little guesswork to get you on the right medication. So if you need medication, you might get on the wrong medication, which could rev you up, it could agitate you, it could make your anxiety worse until you get on the right medication. So you might have to go through some uncomfortable weeks to get on the right medication. How can I know if I struggle with depression? This is a great question. What I, if you struggle with depression, with depression, go online and in the search bar put depression self-test. When the page pops up, follow three links and take three different depression self-tests and find out if you have mild, moderate, or severe depression. There's a difference between having a blue mood and being depressed. Depression is like, the, the metaphor I would use, how many of you have a basement in your house? Okay, so you've been in a basement, you know what I mean by the basement. Some parts of the country, they don't have basements, you know. But having a blue mood would be like going down in the basement to do the laundry and coming back up. Or your dad goes down in the basement and he works on the workbench and he comes back up, okay? Or, uh, they go down in the basement and get the, the Christmas tree, the fake Christmas tree to set up, or the Christmas decorations, and then they come back up out of the basement. <coughs> but being depressed is like going in the basement and somebody bonking you on the head with a pipe and tying you to the post, and they go up the stairs at the top of the stairs and they lock the deadbolt, and you're stuck. That's what it feels like to be depressed. You're stuck in this dark mood, you don't have any energy, your brain's not working, you're trying to study, but you're not remembering anything, you're reading, you're not focusing, you feel do-nothingism, you feel helpless, hopeless, helpless, uh, powerless. Those are the kind of things that come with depression. It's like if somebody knocked you on the head and tied you to the post, you would need help to get out. It's not like just going downstairs to do a load of laundry and coming back up. You're down there and you're stuck and you're trapped and you need help. So these are the things I want you guys to take with you. We're flat out of time. The three questions, solid self-esteem, godly sexuality, destigmatizing depression and suicidal thoughts. And I want you to realize you all are a great value in the sight of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you everybody. Thank you. Yes.
Pardon? Yeah. Hey, you're my buddy.